Well, it's good to see you. If you're a guest, I'm David. I'm the pastor here, and we're glad that you're here to worship with us. You're always invited to the things we have going on. Uh, we're in a summer, uh, summer series um, on First Peter called Being a Believer in a Non-Believing Culture. And here's the thing, especially, I mean, I put this up here uh, every service, but uh, especially if you're first time with us, you need to know this. Being a believer in a non-believing culture requires a commitment to Jesus that surpasses um, any commitment of any person who's not a follower of Christ. I mean, if you're going to live in a hostile culture, and more and more we are, whether we like to admit it or not, our culture is becoming increasingly more hostile. So if that's going to happen, it requires from us a commitment that exceeds anybody else's commitment uh, at all. And so here's the thing. You know, we, we, we've seen so far that we are chosen by God, and that we have seen that we are revealed in suffering. Our faith, our commitment to Christ is even revealed in our suffering. We've seen that we are called for holiness and that we, last week, saw that we will live as examples. And so we come today to what many people consider to be kind of the heart of the message of First Peter. In chapter 3, verse 13 through 16, that we are to suffer for righteousness. If you're going to suffer, be sure that you're suffering for the cause of righteousness. And so here's what the scripture says. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous or compassionate, passionate about for what is good. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So here's the thing that I want you to see from the message today. Uh, strange as it may seem to uh, American Christians, Jesus and the New Testament writers expected believers to suffer for a living as followers of Christ. It's strange for us to think this way. Because in the history of America, you know, Christianity was kind of held in high esteem. People were Christians, but we live in a different culture now. And it's strange to us, but understand that Jesus and the people who wrote the New Testament expected us who live as followers of Christ to face suffering, persecution, discrimination, all of those things. Uh, so we need to realize when, when Peter, Peter wrote this letter, and, and Peter is the apostle, and as I've shared this before in the other messages, but I want to be sure and share it again, and I will in every message for those who've come for the first time and are hearing this message for the first time or hearing this series, that, that Peter had an authority and an authenticity that's unmatched by anyone else. He, he was one of the closest people to Jesus. I mean, Peter, Peter was close to Christ. He was there throughout the ministry with Jesus. Um, and, and Peter was it. And when Jesus left, he, he had Peter kind of in charge of the group. So he understood Jesus as well as anyone. So he speaks and writes with authority. But he also has an authenticity. Because the, the things he writes about, the, the persecution, the hostility, uh, what it is to suffer, he experienced that. Now, now, Peter writes this letter a little bit right around 64 AD, probably right before there is going to be a massive persecution started by Nero. He starts that persecution in 64. It is the official Roman policy. It is, it's what Rome, it becomes the way they do things for the next 260 years to persecute Christians. But before that, there had always been some persecution. People had even died. Stephen had died. James, the brother of John, had died. And Peter himself had experienced that. So he had this authenticity, he understood. And, and the thing about Peter is Peter fully expected, he fully knew that he would probably lose his life for Christ. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, this is what he writes. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling or death is imminent. 
as also, notice this, our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Well, how did Jesus make clear to him that was going to happen? Well, the Gospel of John, at the very end, records something. John recorded something Jesus said to Peter, and here's what it is. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. John goes on to elaborate and says, that was to explain the type of death that Peter would have. In other words, Peter was going to die for Jesus. So he understood that. And, and, and so here's the thing. A culture that is hostile to believers was all Peter ever knew or expected. He knew nothing else. That's all Peter ever knew in life. See, we don't know that. We don't experience, you know, in most of our lives in history, a, a, a hostile culture to Christ. But that's all Peter ever knew. It's all he ever expected. So in, in, in what you see here in verse 13 and 14 is you see Peter sharing out a, a condition of the way things were. Here's what he said in verse 14. Peter says, you're blessed. Now notice, he said, all of you, you followers of Christ, he was writing to people who were in what we would call Turkey, back then Asia Minor. They were people who were Gentiles who become followers of Jesus, primarily Gentiles. And he said, you're blessed. And the idea of blessed speaks of a condition of our life that, that we have. Um, it, it speaks of God's favor towards us. And it's not dependent on any outward circumstances. Sometimes you'll, you'll find the word for blessed, makarios, is translated happy, but happiness in our culture carries the idea of subjective things. Things go on that make us happy or unhappy. So it's really not the best translation. It doesn't really, in our, in our day and age, speak to what it means to be blessed. Now, Peter would understand blessing because Jesus talked about the blessed life. In Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we have what is called the Sermon on the Mount. This was the fundamental basic message of Jesus to all who were his followers. He had a group at that time, they were of Jewish people, they were listening to him preach this message. He probably preached this message many times. It's only recorded once, and that's in Matthew. And some people think we only preached it one time, but no preacher would ever think that. If you're a pastor or a preacher, and you preach very often, if you have a message that is good, you preach it all the time. And, and you have a basic theme. And this theme of Jesus, we would preach all the time, and, and, and the disciples would know it, including Peter and Matthew who wrote the book. And he begins the Sermon on the Mount describing the characteristic of a Christian who is part of what we would call the kingdom of heaven. To the Jew, the kingdom of heaven is what we would know as salvation. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed at the last of the Beatitudes was blessed are those who suffer, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He was talking about being a part of his kingdom, being his. And he described their life as being blessed. Eight times he talked about being blessed. Because he's describing the overall characteristic of someone who is blessed by God, of the follower of Jesus. They're, they're poor in spirit, they mourn, they're gentle, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're merciful, they're pure in heart, they're peacemakers, and he says they suffer. And he says, this is your life, this is your condition. So Peter understood what it means to be blessed. He was writing to believers who were blessed. And he begins verse 14 by saying this, you're blessed, and first of all, he says this though, even when you suffer for righteousness. Even if you suffer for righteousness, he says, you're blessed. Now, Jesus, the last of the Beatitudes in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 5, said, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness. He went on to explain that. Blessed are you when people persecute you, say all types of things that are slanderous about you because of me. So he's expecting them with everything else to suffer. And so Peter understood this. Now, to suffer is to experience pain. It could, could be physical, emotional, whatever. It could be some type of loss. It could be economic loss. He says, for the condition or the sake of being righteous. Now, 
when, when we become followers of Christ, or in the process of becoming followers of Christ, we are by God declared righteous. Some people call, use the word justified. Paul writes about it. Righteous, justified, same things. It is a new condition we have. God makes us that way. Once we are declared righteous by God, we live in a state of righteousness. We are to do things that coincide with righteous, to live a righteous life, to live a life that glorifies God. And he says, when you live that life, you may suffer because of it. A hostile culture may react towards you negatively simply because you are living in agreement with the condition of your life that is to be declared right by God. You're still blessed when that happens. Nothing takes that blessing away. In fact, this whole section begins in verse 13 this way. Who is it that will harm you if you are zealous or passionate or eager to do good, good things that God wants you to do? Well, you know, we might say, well, you wait a short time, Peter. You'll find out Nero will harm you. But the idea isn't that they aren't harmed at all. It sees a bigger picture. It's a rhetorical question. Ultimately, if you are part of the kingdom of God, and you are blessed in that kingdom. In other words, you, you're, you're a follower of Jesus. You've been blessed. You, you live that way. You're righteous. Who is there truly to harm you? Who can take away that righteousness? Who can do anything to damage that? The answer is no one can. Even if you suffer, even if you're persecuted, no one can take away that security, that absolute finality of your being in a righteous state, of you being declared right by God. No one can take that away. So he says this, do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled. If you have the New New International Version, it may say, do not fear what they fear, because the Greek text actually says, do not fear, fear. But the idea isn't, don't be afraid of the things the hostile people are afraid to. It's more like this, don't be afraid when those who are hostile to Christ try to make you afraid. In other words, there's intimidation, the American Standard says, and that makes sense. People who are hostile to Christ, people who persecute Christians, people who are trying to do things to turn you, they're putting pressure, they're intimidating you so that you will renounce Jesus, so that you won't follow Jesus. They're causing you trouble. He says, don't be intimidated and don't have any trouble. Why? Because you're blessed. There's nothing they can do to you. And so that's the condition of your life. And from that condition, then in verse 14 and 15, he gives what we might call a calling or a command. And here's what it says. He says, instead, do this. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, we've got to understand what that means. First of all, the heart was not the place of emotion. The heart was the place of decisions. The heart was the place of will, of how you make commitments. The place of emotion was actually your stomach, your gut. So if you look today, we would say back then, instead of saying, I love you with all my heart, you would say, I love you with all my gut. And so I obviously love my wife quite a bit. I have a bigger gut. <laughs> if you're married to a skinny guy, I got news for you. He really, when he says, I love you off all my gut, there's nothing there. Put on some weight, man. You can say, I love you with everything. I'm a big guy. I love you. And some of you can appreciate that because we're bigger guys. We have a lot of love. We love with all of our gut. But that's... Their heart, though, meant the place where you make the decisions. So in your decision-making, your commitment, sanctify Christ as Lord. Now, we've already seen the word sanctify in three different sermons. or holy. It, it comes from the Greek word akios, which means to be holy. In chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, the first message, you are called by God, you're chosen by God, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, and it says, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the, the making you holy, and it means to be set apart. 
Later on in verse 15, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago, it, it said, be holy because I am holy, quoting God, God is holy. So we need to be holy because God is holy. They're again, holy, sanctified. And so here's, once again, it expresses a condition. The condition is this. The Holy Spirit works to sanctify you. He is the one responsible for setting you apart to making you holy. Then you live in the condition of being holy, sanctified, set apart. Once you're in that state, you live your life conforming. So to live a righteous life is to live a sanctified life, the holy life. But not only that, we are called now to understand that Jesus is Lord, and so we set him apart in our life. We recognize that. We live that way. I, I've heard people say it this way. I've heard people say, and this is incorrect, by the way, that I, I, I was saved when I was nine. I was saved when I was nine. But I was saved when I was nine, someone might say, but I didn't make Jesus Lord until I was in college. Well, I got news for you. You don't ever make Jesus Lord. He just simply is Lord. No one makes him Lord. I got, when someone says, well, someone says, you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. Nope. Can't make him Lord. He's Lord. You have no part of that. Paul says in chapter 2 of Philippians, there will come a time when every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And he is Lord. If you say I was saved at night, but I didn't, I didn't make Jesus Lord until I was in college, then you got something wrong. You either weren't saved or you don't understand what you're talking about. Here's the thing. To set him apart as Lord means to commit to his lordship. In other words, you recognize he is Lord. And so in your decision making, the place where you decide things, where you make your commitments, you have set him, you have recognized he is Lord, and you are committed to him as Lord. That's what it means. In a hostile culture, a person who is blessed commits their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what that says. So here's the thing. In a hostile culture, it's necessary to remember that Jesus is Lord. We live in a culture now that's hostile to Christ. It used to not be that way. I mean, I, I, it's not that I can remember back when, you know, when people weren't in our culture weren't hostile to Christ. I mean, everybody, everybody was friendly. You know, Christianity was kind of accepted. And somewhere along the lines, 10, 15 years ago, the rules all changed. And it's not that everybody is hostile. In fact, most people aren't hostile to Christianity or to Christ. But there is such a, 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 such a devoted, hostile group of people that we feel that pressure in our culture. So it, it seems like, well, okay, Jesus is, is losing this battle. Remember this. Jesus is Lord. Always. That never changes. The history of the Christian church is the history of a culture that's always hostile to Christ until you get to America. is always hostile to Christ, and Christ's always winning. All the cultures that have ever been hostile to Jesus have always lost. Jesus always wins. I mean, they put Jesus to death, and it looked like he was defeated. And then three days later, he was raised back to life. He always wins. Anytime the culture takes one position, and here's Jesus, let me give you some advice. Always go with Jesus. Always go with Jesus because Jesus ultimately will always win. Why? Because he's Lord. So live your life that way. And here's the thing. He then gives two ways you do that. So the first thing Peter says there in, in verse 15, after sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, is then always be prepared to give a defense if someone asks for an account of the hope that you have in him. Now, the hope we have... Um, Back in, in first Peter, I mean the first chapter of First Peter, in verse three, it says that we have been born again into a living hope. Now I have, you know, I didn't preach a message on that. And by the way, let me just say this. 
on the 26th of July, that's a Friday night, we're going to have what we call a deep fry. And that's not, we're not making fish, by the way. A deep fry is we're not cooking fish. If you want to do that, you're welcome to do it. We ain't doing it here. The deep fry is a steep study on a Friday night of 1 Peter. And it's from 6.30 to, to 10. And we have child care for preschoolers. So come. And a lot of things that I don't cover in these seven messages that I'll cover that. But here's the thing. He says, you've been born again to a living hope. We have a hope as fathers of Christ. I talked about that the other uh, message ago, I think, in another, in another uh, passage. The hope is not wishful thinking. The hope is a confident expectation of what's going to occur based on what has already happened. So Jesus, from a doctrinal standpoint, he tells us he's coming again. How can I know he's coming again? Because of what he did the first time he was here. When Jesus was on this earth, Jesus said to us, or to his fathers, he says, I'm going to die the authorities are going to put me to death. I'll be dead three days, and on the third day, I'll rise again. He said that. And then you know what he did? He went and he did it. <laughs> I mean, if a guy tells you he's going to die and be come back to life on the third day, and he pulls that off, you probably ought to listen to him, shouldn't you? I mean, that, seems, that makes sense. So when Jesus says, I'm coming again, I, okay, I believe him. I have that hope. I have the confidence it's going to occur. From a salvation standpoint, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ, because God had raised him back to life, has given me salvation. I didn't deserve it. He gave it to me. And when he saved me, here's what he says. You're blessed. You're blessed for all eternity. Nothing can take that away from you. And that is the hope that I have. So I have to be ready to give a defense. Now, the idea of a defense comes from the Greek word of uh, apology. We get our term apology from that. And to us, an apology is to say you're wrong. But that's not what this means. The word defense it's a legal term, though it's not necessarily used in a legal way here. It's a legal term that means this, to speak and give an account of why you believe what you believe or say what you say or do what you do in terms of it being proved right or correct or necessary. In other words, it's to speak on your behalf, to say, this is why I believe what I believe. This is why I say what I say. This is why I do what I do. And I'm saying this to you so you'll see that I am right or correct. That's what it means. So always be prepared to talk about why your faith, your hope in Christ is the right thing. Now, it could be that people who are hostile to you in a culture are demanding, you give us a reason why you should trust Christ. And tell us about this, Jesus. Or it could be people who are not necessarily hostile, <clears throat> but are observing the hostility. They're saying, why, why in the midst of all this stuff do you still follow Jesus? And you're saying, this is why I do it. Give a defense, and he says, do it with gentleness and reverence or respect. In other words, don't be hostile in doing it. In fact, just the opposite. Be gentle. So what Peter's telling us is that when the culture is hostile towards you, the correct response is to, with gentleness and respect, be reverence. We might say love. Explain to them why you have this faith, this hope. Now, Peter would tell you that in doing that, it's for the purpose of winning other people over to Christ, which is the history of the Christian movement. In a hostile culture, people keep coming to Jesus. Why? Because followers gave defenses of why they believed what they believed, did what they did, and said what they said with gentleness and reverence. Then he goes on to say this, and keep a good conscience. The conscience is that, that sense of, of moral uh, attributes. It's the self-awareness. Keep it good. Keep it clear. Keep it focused. And he says, so that, for this reason, when they slander you, when they curse you, when they speak evil against you, and they, and they attack 
the good that you do in Christ, your good behavior, they will be ashamed. In other words, you, you live such a life that when the hostility comes, other people will look at you. And they'll say, why are you attacking them? They're, they've done nothing wrong. They've lived, you know, honoring their God. They've lived in accordance to what they believe. And the hostile people will be put to shame. But several years ago, uh, I was in Atlanta, in the southern part of Atlanta, and I went to a Chick-fil-A. There's, there's like two Chick-fil-A's in all of Atlanta, right? I mean, have you ever been to Atlanta? Chick-fil-A and Waffle House, that's all they had. They have no other restaurants in Atlanta, but Chick-fil-A and Waffle House. That's where you go. So I was at a Chick-fil-A, and, you know, I went through and I did the whole Chick-fil-A thing. You know, I love Chick-fil-A. I go to Chick-fil-A all the time. And uh, I love Waffle House, too, because I don't want to offend Waffle House people. So I don't want to offend you if you like Waffle House. I don't want to offend you if you like Chick-fil-A. And I don't know what else. It's like. I like chicken and waffles. I, I'd have a restaurant to do both, you know, chicken and waffles. Here you go. And a few days after I was left Atlanta, that particular Chick-fil-A and a couple others were being picketed. They were protesters coming out, protesting Chick-fil-A. And so this is what the Chick-fil-A people did. You know what they did? They went in, and it was a hot, hot day. And they went and took them lemonade and water, and they told them if they got hot from protesting them, come inside and cool off, and if you need to go to the bathroom, just come on in. It's okay. And you know what that did to the protest? It's kind of hard to protest when the people are being kind to you. Chick-fil-A is a horrible company that just gave us lemonade water, offered us a bathroom, and we can come in and cool off. And it just went, they put them to shame. So what I'm saying, what Peter says is this. The way you live your life in Christ, the world is watching. The world watches us. So have a good conscience in the way you live your life. Here's the thing. To overcome the hostility of a culture in opposition to Jesus, you need to focus on Jesus and his call on your life. If you want to be in overcoming a hostile culture, focus on Jesus. Now, you know, here's the thing. We need to understand the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What is Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tells you about Jesus. And in that story, here's what we know. We know who he is and what he did. Who he is is what we celebrate at Christmas. He's the God in the flesh. What he did is what we celebrate at Easter. He went to the cross and died for us and God raised him back to life. We know who he is and what he did. Then we need to understand the significance of that. The significance of who he is and what he did is it provides salvation from our rebellion and our sin against God. So we need, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to kind of understand that stuff. It's kind of important. But not only do you have to understand that, you have to understand how it gives a call upon your life. So here's the thing. To give an influential and persuasive reason for your faith in Christ, an influential and persuasive reason for your faith in Christ, you need to balance the authority of the gospel, that gospel story, with the authenticity of your life, kind of like Peter did. In other words, you need to take the authority of Jesus' story. His story is important. It's the authority. His death, burial, resurrection. And then you need to take your story of your life in Christ and you demerge them. And notice, the story of Jesus always dominates our story. It's the authority. But people want to know, how did Jesus change your life? And that's what Peter did. He took the authority of Jesus and the authenticity. He lived an authentic life. Authentic life. Now, it's, it's kind of like your story. All of us have a story. I used to say our story was like a book that people read, but books are becoming passe. became passe. So then I went a, a few years back to, it's a video. But now I'm told that people don't have videos anymore, that they did DVDs. So I said, okay, it's like a DVD. Now I'm told nobody does DVDs. So it's like a live streaming of your life, okay? 
Just pretend your life is being live streamed. That's scary as all get out. Now, if you were to live stream Peter's life, there are parts of Peter's life that are just, just like, how is this guy? What is he? I mean, Peter, Jesus called Peter Satan. Now think about it. Do you ever want Jesus to call you Satan? Nope. Jesus called Peter Satan. And there was a time right before his betrayal, the night of his betrayal, he was going to wash the feet of the disciples, but Jesus was. And Peter said, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of my kingdom. He said, go ahead, wash my feet. I was wrong on that one, I guess. Later on, Peter denied Jesus three times. He denied Jesus three times. And you look at that, you're saying, what kind of guy is Peter? Well, if you look at the whole live stream, Peter's the guy that said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's the one who went to the tomb with John as soon as he heard it was empty. He ran to get there to see what was going on. Peter's the one in Acts chapter 2. Preaches this message that was so unbelievable that 3,000 people were saved. Do you know Jesus never preached a message where 3,000 people were saved? Never did. He never preached a message where hardly anybody got saved. I mean, he fed 5,000 people. Sure, they all abandoned him. John 6 tells us that. They all fled when Jesus said what was expected. Jesus never preached that way. I mean, Peter preached this phenomenal message. The story of your life matters. There is the authority of Jesus. It oversees everything. But there's the authenticity of your life that makes that story come alive to the people around you. And you need to have that story. You need to have that authority of Jesus. You need to have the authenticity of your life. And here's why. Because the culture is only hostile to you if they see you living a life dedicated to Jesus. Culture is only going to be hostile to you if they see you living that life. You know, think about it. Throughout Christian history, the, the history of people who are followers of church, when the culture has been hostile, more and more people become followers of Jesus. In fact, the only time, really, that that's not been the case is most of the time in American history, people became followers of Jesus, and we didn't live in a hostile culture. And now we're starting to live in a hostile culture. And maybe, just maybe, that's really a good thing. Maybe it'll take all the, the people who claim to be Christians but who really aren't, and it'll just move them to the side. And then the people who are truly following Christ... Who, who are living a life committed to him. Maybe it'll show them who they are, and they will start helping people come to Jesus. Because that's been how it's always been done. It's always been that when people are hostile to Christ, more people follow Christ. So maybe in some respect, the best thing that could ever happen to me, and the best thing that could ever happen to you, is that people become hostile to Jesus. I'll be honest with you. I don't really like that idea of suffering. Anybody who says they want to suffer for Christ, they're insane, man. Crazy. I, I, I would like, if it was up to me, just up to David, I would like to live my life in peace. I want to be a father of Jesus. Everybody leave me alone. It didn't work that way. If I take Jesus seriously, and I seek in my life to honor God, and I seek in my life to get people to Jesus as fast as I can, the culture will be hostile to my life. Because a culture that is hostile to God cannot tolerate people who honor God 
and bring people to Jesus. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do in that life? As we come to our time of invitation, here's what I want to share that you should do. Set apart Christ as Lord. Make the commitment today and say, Jesus, here's the thing. As, as I follow you, and as the culture gets more hostile because of that, I'm going to completely commit my life to serving you, whatever it takes. You need to start making that commitment. And you, you, you need to start praying, Jesus, I, I am committing myself to you completely. In a few moments, we're going to have people up here, men and women, if you want to come talk to one of the guys or the gals, that's fine, you want to pray, but you need to make this commitment. I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to be able to give a defense of my faith, and I'm going to keep a good conscience when people slander me. Some of you, what you need to do, <laughs> you need to praise God because you're blessed. When was the last time you praised God because you have the blessed life? That you have the life that Jesus has set you apart and has blessed you. And that no matter whatever else happens, that state of blessedness, that hope, that salvation will never be taken from you. When was the last time you just said, praise you, God, that I am blessed? Some of you maybe. Because of the hostility in your family or work or neighborhood or school, whatever, have kind of been shying away from your commitment. And today you need to say, I've got to stop doing that. That's enough's enough. But if the culture is going to get hostile, I can't move away from Christ. I've got to move to Christ. And so today you are going to say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm committing myself to you completely. If you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior, I invite you to join a culture that people are increasingly hostile to. Come be part of us. That people revile and slander and hate. Come join Jesus and live a life that is blessed for all eternity. I don't know what it is that you as an individual need to do. But I know this. If I'm truly going to be a follower of Christ, I walk out of this place today praising God for the blessed state of my life. And I walk out of this place today having set my heart to Jesus. Do that. Do that today. So, Father, thank you for the blessed state that we have. Thank you for the salvation we know. And thank you, Father, that in a world that is hostile, I never have to fear, I never have to worry that my state of being blessed will ever be taken from me, that my hope is secure, my salvation is for eternity. So, Father, move in our life, move in my life, to set my life apart for you, so that I will glorify God in all the things that happen. And I will help bring people to Jesus. So, Father, let that be our story today. And in a culture that is hostile to you, in a culture that will be hostile to us, let us say, so what? We will never be intimidated. And we'll never be afraid. Because we are blessed. And Christ is set apart in our hearts. For your glory and honor we pray. Amen. Would you stand? If you need to come forward today, we'll have people here. You come.